2: Useless
1: information.
3: Hi everyone, welcome to the latest episode of the Retrocast. Today I have my wife Mary Jane joining us.
0: Hi everybody.
3: And I've had a lot of problem with the microphones as I've mentioned in previous podcasts. Uh, what I've done is I've actually opened up her mic a bit so let's a little bit more static in. So I have to apologize for that in advance, but we're going to try and get through this and see how it works out. Uh, if you guys on the other end are hearing a lot of static, just let me know. And we'll try and tweak it. Uh, I figure it'll get a little bit better over time. Anyway, uh, what we're going to do is we've decided we're just going to alternate the stories. Uh, you're, usually I read them all. You're going to take one. I'll take sure. one and so on.
0: Sounds like a good idea. Yeah.
3: And um, the, the first three stories, which are the ones I've actually researched, these all have something to do with lingerie.
0: Okay. Yeah,
3: and uh, the reason for that is it actually ties in with the retro sponsor they're going to play in a bit. I actually had two lingerie stories. I had to dig up a third, so I did some searching, and uh, actually the one that I found last is the one I'm going to read first. Here we go. You ready?
0: Sure. Let's go.
3: Okay. So the first story for today takes place in 1907 in Muskogee, which was back then in 1907 part of what was called Indian Territory. Uh, Four months later, become part of the state of Oklahoma. Anyway, uh, yeah, kind of give a little background before I tell this story, and that is that in 1802, the Indian Non-Intercourse Act uh, and its various amendments that came after it, it made it illegal to sell or offer to sell alcohol anywhere within Indian territory or to Native Americans themselves. Now, without going into the rationale for this, basically uh, the introduction of alcohol into Native American culture was a disaster, and that's why this went into place. I'm sure there were other uh, reasons for it, but that's the main reason. Anyway, uh, so without going into the exact details of the Indian Non-Intercourse Act, it did carve out exceptions for the white man. Basically, it could be sold and consumed uh, by the white man and you know in the white communities, but not to Native Americans.
0: Okay. Mm-hmm.
3: Now, uh, one of these towns was Keystone, which is a real rough and tumble saloon town, which is about 17 miles or 28 kilometers northeast of Tulsa. And when I say rough and tumble, I mean it was everything, gambling, prostitution, and so on.
0: Right. No. No law.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, basically. Um, And the town no longer exists, and that's because it was drowned by the waters of the Arkansas River in 1962 because they built the dam, and of course it became a reservoir, and now the entire town is underwater. Anyway, at the turn of the 20th century, Oklahoma was the largest producing oil uh, state in the United States. Uh, It would alternate back and forth between uh, California and Oklahoma. You know, if you're drilling a lot of oil, obviously a lot of men come into the area to drill that oil. And naturally, that also meant a lot of demand for alcohol.
0: Now, money, they have money, they can, they want to... Have some fun,
3: <laughs> but the problem was, of course, the Indian Non-Intercourse Act forbid the sale of alcohol outside of the white community. These guys are working out in the fields on the oil rigs, um, so they were expected to hop on their horses. Really, you know, this is 1907. They really had to get on their horses and go all the way, uh, you know, to one of the wet towns. So they realized, you know, well, if they can't go get the alcohol, someone's going to bring the alcohol to them. So an illegal trade, uh, you know, grew out of that, and. Uh, Basically, they'd bring the alcohol from Keystone along what was called the Keystone Trail down to the oil, wor- oil fields for the workers. But as you know, with any illegal trade comes hijacking, robbery, and all that kind of stuff. So soon the law began to you know crack down on the smugglers. But no matter how hard they tried, the alcohol continued to get through. And that's no different than the drug mm-hmm. trade today. I mean, no matter how hard they try, uh, the sure. drugs still managed to get through. Anyway, this is the real story that I was going to tell and that is on July 13th in 1907, Deputy Marshal Dan Parker began talking about how, and this is in quotes, two handsome women, uh, you never use that term today, but two handsome women who had been driving a wagon along the Keystone Trail, he stopped to talk to them, and he didn't really suspect anything until one of the women offered to sell him some whiskey. So he stated, yeah, I'll buy it. You know, what the heck? Uh, And then she showed him, of course, the goods, and he placed the two women immediately under arrest. And he was pretty happy because he had uncovered a new method. No one ever suspected that women would be the ones, yeah, with uh, you know, moving the album. Yeah. Right, exactly. So anyway, uh, the women were very cooperative, and they, you know, didn't put up a fight or anything. But they told Parker they needed to get out of their fancy clothes uh, before they went into town. So uh, he was a very polite guy. He was very nice. He went into the woods, and he, he, he waited there a little yeah. bit while they were behind their wagons changing their clothes. Sure. And you know exactly where this is going. Yeah. Um, you know, after a few minutes, he's like, what's taking so long? And he yeah. went, of course, they were long gone. They took to the bushes also.
0: You also wonder what the excuse was for changing their clothes. I mean, that's a little right. strange.
3: Yeah, I don't know. Got me. Um, anyway, so, uh, Parker took the immediate steps to legally arrest. That was the term they use at the time. I think today we call it seizure. Mm-hmm. He seized the corsets, the petticoats, the lingerie, the alcohol, their wagons, their horses, and just about everything else that they yeah. had left behind. And then he, uh, of course, hopped on his wagon and headed for Muskogee, but the prisoners got away. He never caught them. Now, uh, the two parts that I want to conclude on this is that Parker did manage to uncover a smuggling technique that no one had ever suspected before, the use of women to transport the goods, but he he managed to make the national newspapers under the headlines, Arrested Corsets. <laughs> okay.
0: okay. Yeah. So that's the lingerie. Yeah. yeah, I
3: don't think it's the best of the three stories I put together for today, but, uh, um, you yeah, know, it was kind of... Uh,
0: well, it's interesting that that's where the attention was was placed on corsets, not you know the fact that he you know had discovered this um, way of transporting.
3: The, well, it's typical, of the newspapers always you know put the 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 headline the on it,
0: sensationalized that we'll... kind right, of right, exactly information. Yeah.
3: Okay, so now you're up. You're going to read one.
0: Okay, this one. The title is "Lingerie Rummage Sale Fails." On Wednesday evening, April thirtieth, nineteen fifty-two. A water fight broke out between students at a male dormitory and those at a neighboring fraternity house at the University of Nebraska in Lincoln, Nebraska. It wasn't long before things escalated out of control. The students then made their way to a sorority house where house mother Mrs. Mary Buckingham attempted to keep the boys out. She was unsuccessful. The boys pushed her aside, leaving her with bruises and a wrenched back, once inside, they pilfered every piece of lingerie that they could bind. Next, they did the same at the women's dormitory and every other sorority house. At its peak, more than 400 male students were involved, and the female students were left with no undergarments other than what they were wearing at the time. Okay. Damage was estimated at $700, that's nearly $7,000 adjusted for inflation, which included the stolen lingerie and some broken furniture in the sorority houses. A second disturbance occurred the following evening. An estimated 100 male students raided the sorority houses. As the young women piled out of the buildings, they were soaked with water, and paint was spattered on the back of their jeans. Dean of Students Affairs T.J. Thompson and campus police attempted to bring calm to the mob. They responded by treating Thompson the same. As he was talking with reporters, a group of boys doused him with water. Most of these boys out here, Thompson told the press, are not university students, but high school boys and local residents. During the final moments of the disturbance, a number of the male students moved on to the women's dormitory, where they ripped a window screen from the building, damaged an iron door, and splattered mud on the façade. So what do you do with a huge pile of women's lingerie? The male students came up with a unique plan. They advertised that there would be a rummage sale of choice lingerie in the campus newspaper. They weren't looking to sell any of it. Their goal was to get the women to come over to the male dormitory and claim their unmentionables. On May 3rd, tables were set up outside the male dormitory and the lingerie was placed on display. Their rummage sale was a complete failure. Only six girls showed up and not a single undergarment was claimed. One male student commented, We've got this stuff now and we can't get rid of it. At a student convocation on Tuesday, May 13, 1952, University Chancellor R.J. Gustavson stated that 75 male students had been identified as having participated in the raids on the women's dormitory and the sororities. Each had been placed on conduct probation and forbidden from participating in any extracurricular activities. They had been warned that if they committed another infraction of university rules, they would be expelled. He stated, it is our hope that all active participants will eventually be identified. Everyone will recognize, of course, the difficulty in identifying all those who took part. Students identified as active members of the raiding party have been asked to pay damages. So,
3: you have any comments on that?
0: Well, you know, at first I I didn't know whether to laugh or be upset, um, but I did did do a little reading on really what was called panty braids in the 1950s, and you know they stated that in fact it was very common and sometimes the girls were in on it maybe not this particular one because it was mm-hmm. one, of, one of the first but it they you know it, it is said that it had to do with the curfews the boys and the girls students did not like that they had curfews that they were not allowed into the dorms so it was a form of protest actually mm-hmm.
3: as you know I have folders everywhere sure, you, uh, you know story after, story after story after story and piles and piles of uh, possible stories so one of them is labeled panty raids yeah. you know years ago I was thinking maybe that'd be a good story but I you know it just seemed like one that was too well known and uh, I don't know maybe a little bit too salacious you know
0: well I mean it's historical mm-hmm. you know and uh, I, I don't I it, the only thing that was really harmful in this is you know it sounds like the person guarding the door the uh the the dorm mother was hurt a little sure. which is not good of course but um it's i don't know it's kind of humorous almost yeah. yeah
3: okay so let's move on to the last story that I uh, that I researched for today and this one is about the band Alice Cooper remember them yes i do Most famous uh, song was School's Out.
0: School's Out. I love Uh, that.
3: Yeah. Kids Uh,
0: still do. Love that. Um, Around June. I don't know why.
3: (laughs) Yeah, in Chatham, uh, (laughs) just a little, um, before I get into the story, in Chatham, where I taught for 30 years, they have a PA system, of course, to to do all the announcements on. It has the worst sound in the world. I mean, you do not play music on this. And actually, on the older system, it was even worse before they replaced it. And uh, every year on the last day of school, when the last bell would ring, they'd play they'd schools play. out. I
0: think that's great. Yeah,
3: yeah, but you could hardly recognize it. You knew, I mean, if you didn't know the song, you'd hardly know that's what was being played. But oh, uh, That's
0: a really bad PA. <laughs> yeah. Um,
3: okay. Anyway, um, so uh, this story is from June 19th of 1972, and it regards a unique promotion that the band Alice Cooper had been staging at the time. This one's actually pretty famous. Uh, I don't know if you know it. Uh, anyway, uh, their latest album at the time, which just happened to be Schools Out, had the image of an old wooden desk on the front. As you open the album, you lifted the cover. The front of the desk would actually lift up. The wooden top would lift up, and then of course that rev- that would reveal the contents of the desk. And I just looked at the image quickly. There were pencils, right. crayons, erasers, marbles, a Schools Out quiz, a slingshot. Everybody had a pocket knife in in their desk, right? right. Um, today, if you're caught yeah, with one, you'd be today. suspended. That
0: would be bad. <laughs> Yeah, uh,
3: superintendent's hearing, for sure. Now, the album cover was designed by a guy named Craig Braun, and he's the same guy who worked with Andy Warhol to design the Rolling Stones' Sticky Fingers album. Do you know about that album?
0: I know it by title. I can't visualize what the cover looks yeah, like. Yeah,
3: if you saw it, you definitely know it because it's one of the, I'd say it's infamous because- It, it sounds
0: infamous. So yeah. <laughs> I mean,
3: well, anything from the Rolling yeah. Stones, you know, back then probably. Anyway, it's a, basically a male model's crotch. That's all, you, you know, basically from the stomach down to the top of the legs okay. in tight blue jeans. And you can see a little bit of the private part there. And what was most famous wow. about this album was it had a real working zipper on it. Goodness. So you, you'd, okay. you'd pull it down and, and you <laughs> the
0: nineteen f- seventies, right?
3: Yeah, this is early ni- early nineteen seventies, yeah, yeah. Of
0: course. <laughs> uh, I want to say that
3: album maybe can I someone's gonna tell me I'm way wrong on this. I'm just doing it's from memory. I think it might be nineteen seventy one that album came out. Okay. Um, but anyway, um, maybe nineteen seventy two. But anyway, uh, when you open the zipper uh, it would reveal, uh, you know, it would just flip back a little bit and you could see the underwear and then it had Andy Warhol's signature under there. Oh, okay. That was basically it. Um, the biggest problem with these albums were uh, that when they ship in the stores, the zipper would actually damage one of the tracks. So they ca- the solution to it is they actually had to unzip them all, uh, pull the zipper down, and then it wouldn't hit the record where it, it would damage any of the tracks on the record. Yeah. But anyway, uh, that's a very famous album. So the same guy worked on Schools Out uh, by uh, Alice Cooper. Now, uh, as unusual as the album cover was, what really made this famous what was inside, and that's because lead singer Alice Cooper, uh, his original name was Vincent Furnier, uh, and uh, he always said one of the smartest things he ever did is he changed his name to Alice Cooper. So when the band broke up, he still legally had possession of that name. But anyway, Alice Cooper came with the idea of doing away with the protective record sleeve. Remember years ago when you got a record, it went into a paper sleeve, and then it went into the cover? Anyway, he came with the idea of doing away with that and wrapping the record in a pair of disposable paper panties.
0: Okay. Okay.
3: Yeah. So uh, that that was part of their promotion. Now, uh, the panties were manufactured in England, and they were shipped to the U.S., and then they were distributed to record manufacturing plants in California, Illinois, and New Jersey in alphabetical order there. And everything went well for the first 250,000 copies. But the album was a smash hit. So they ordered an additional 500,000 pair of the paper panties. And that's when U.S. Customs got involved and stopped their shipment. It turns out that the panties failed to pass the Federal Trade Commission's flammable fabrics test. Mm,
0: not, a, not a censorship. It really was a problem. Yeah, like the,
3: so uh, okay. they tested five pairs and determined they all burst into flames in three and a half seconds after being subjected to the heat of a special oven that they used.
0: Hmm. Okay.
3: <laughs> yeah. So Ashley Pandel, an official at Alice Cooper's management firm, uh, which was called Alive Enterprises, argued that the paper panties were intended as packing material and were never intended to be worn. And of course, if that's the case, then they shouldn't be subjected to the test. But to counter that argument, FTC spokesman Edward B. Finch pointed out that the paper panties were imported. They were labeled as being women's apparel, and therefore there was no guarantee that a woman wouldn't put them on. So therefore, they were subject to the test and couldn't be allowed to be imported.
0: It sounds like censorship.
3: Yeah, well, maybe. But anyway. It could be. Anyway, the record company came up with the perfect solution. They would just spray all the paper panties with a flame retardant and then there wouldn't be a problem. Hmm. Alice Cooper, that's the man, commented, quote, I know we're hot right now, but I never thought our panties would catch fire.
0: Okay. Yeah. yeah.
3: Um, I should, I should add, they also did another, to keep the stunt going, because they were receiving so much uh publicity from yeah, the paper panties. Cool. They, uh, they were doing a concert at the Hollywood Bowl in California and they had an audience of 18,000. They had a helicopter fly over and they dropped uh, panties down onto the audience. You know, get yeah. yourself in the news one more time. Right. Now, I know you really want a pair of these, don't you? Oh. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, the good news is that Friday Music recently reissued the vinyl album, Paper Panties and All. The selling price is $34.98. And even better, they have a limited deluxe edition that comes with a report card, which is really just a track listing with the times, a hall pass, a tattoo, a couple of trading cards with a band on it, and of course, your choice of white or pink panties. And that'll only set you back an additional 14 bucks. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So the reason I did these three stories on lingerie is because I actually found, uh, and actually it's in many places on the internet, I found the commercial, one of the ads for the Alice Cooper album. So let's listen to that. Sure.
0: Okay.
1: Hey, Troglodytes. Not about a woman. Not about a woman. Not about a woman. Not about a woman. Have you seen Alice Cooper's Patties yet? <laughs> Alice Cooper's new *Schools Out* album, complete with lace patties, now especially priced at Sears. Hot pants. Plus Jimmy Castor's *Bunch Twilight* album. Come here. And special low prices on Elvis's *Live at Madison Square Garden*. Simon and Garfunkel's *Greatest Hits*. Plus new albums by The Carpenters, Neil Diamond, Free, American and the Dominoes, New Riders of the Purple Sage, and the new *Live at London* album by Chuck Berry. She- new albums and tapes including Alice's Lace Patties now especially priced at Sears. Pull LP's start at
2: 333. 8 track tapes start at 488. Sale ends Saturday. Okay, I
3: don't know about you, but I thought that commercial's a bit harsh on my ears. Um while
0: well, it's advertising.
3: Yeah. <laughs> and uh uh what really surprised me is that it was Sears.
0: I, I agree. I had no idea they had it. Well, I don't recall a music section at Sears.
3: Yeah. Uh, I mean, of course, in the day, Sears sold everything. Yeah, big uh, department store. Yeah. yeah uh, I mean, I remember as a kid, uh, and I, the nearest Sears to me was probably more than a half hour drive away from my parents' house. So we would go to a local department store called James Way, which is long out of business. But they had a small little record section. And you'd yeah. go in there, and they'd have, you know, maybe one aisle, and they have bins on both sides of the aisle. And you'd, you know, pick out, you know they didn't have much of a selection but for the average right. person it's just buying the hits or a records. greatest hits album records are yeah.
0: sold everywhere yeah
3: yeah um, now I did look up the uh, price on this and they said in the ad that it, the records the album started at three dollars and thirty three cents. I looked that up, but just for inflation, that's over twenty dollars today, which seems like a lot of money to me.
0: Yeah, I agree. I mean, kids were buying albums. Where were they getting that kind of money? They were yeah. buying lots, actually. Yeah,
3: I don't know where they were getting that kind of money. Now uh, that is tied to the consumer price index, so it's not like uh, someone just made these, you know, th- these numbers out of nowhere. Right. I mean, over twenty dollars for a single album is it's, it's
0: it's steep. I, it sounds kind of steep.
3: Yeah. Okay, now uh, I do have a question for you. All right. About five years ago, I'm sure you recall this, we took a former student of mine, uh, Sadie Cratch, who's graduating high school, and as a graduation gift, we took her down to the original site where the Woodstock Festival was held in 1969. Yes. And it's a lot different than it was years ago. They've actually built a beautiful amphitheater called uh, Bethel Woods there. And what's most interesting is they have a Woodstock Museum which I thought I'd be very disappointed in, but it was actually it's, a yeah, really, really nice. Yeah, really nice museum. I was very impressed. I, would, I wouldn't go hundreds of miles out of your way to go to this museum, but if you're in the area, in the Catskill Mountains, I would definitely uh, recommend it's going worth there. It. Yeah, worth it. Mm-hmm. it definitely was worth it. So my question uh, for you here okay. is uh, there were 29 acts that played Woodstock. They were paid you know, to come on stage and right. perform. Yeah. So uh, who was the highest paid act at Woodstock? And since you probably don't, uh, you know, there's so many acts that played there, I'm going to give you a multiple choice out of five
0: oh, uh, choices. You. I love multiple choice. <laughs> okay.
3: So here we go. And these are in alphabetical order. No, no other order other than oh, alphabetical.
0: okay. So I won't so, anal- overanalyze. Right. Okay.
3: So uh, was it one, Creedence Clearwater Revival? Mm-hmm. Two, The Grateful Dead?
0: Okay.
3: Three, Jimi Hendrix? Mm-hmm. Four, Santana? Yep. Or five, The Who? So which one of those was the highest paid act? Now, don't give your answer now. I won't. Uh, I'll reveal it at the end of the podcast.
0: Okay.
1: Hello, it is Ryan. And we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lop. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
2: Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around, a watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com.
3: Now we're going to move on to a section that I've been calling footnotes history. These are short little stories that really there's no further research to do, and we're just going to read them word for word, and I'll do the first one. Okay. Uh, this one's dated uh, December nineteenth of nineteen thirty-five, and is titled "Phone Girl Hurt in Freak Auto Accident,
0: mm-hmm.
3: San Jose." Miss Josephine Morgan, telephone operator, was in a hospital today with the local nomination for victim of the year's strangest accident. She parked her automobile and opened the door. The door struck a lamppost. as she stepped to the curb. The globe of the street lamp crashed on her head and left her unconscious. Although Fears were first expressed that she received a fractured skull, she's reported not seriously injured today.
0: Okay, this is from June 6, 1938. And the headline is, Salon Man Claims Fish Milked Cow. <laughs> from Sandusky, Michigan, comes the year's strangest fish story. It involves a former Salon Saskatchewan man, Russell Ostick, who surprised a fish milking a cow and later removed a pound and a half of butter from the fish. Ostick, and the story was published in the Sandusky Republican Tribune, found one of his Guernsey cows standing in a water-filled pasture after a heavy rain. When the cow did not move for some time, Ostick went closer and found it was being milked by a fish. Ostick then caught the fish and found the butter inside it. It's an odd story, but in closing it, the newspaper said, This newspaper has heard about fish stories, but without a doubt, this is one fish story that is true. At least Mr. Ostick says so. Mr. Ostick is well known in the Salon District, south of Regina, and among his many friends there is J.T. Meredith, who says that if Mr. Ostick says it happened... It happened.
3: So, what do you think of that fish story? I, I just don't buy it.
0: Yeah, I even checked to see if it was on April first that it was written, but of course, as I said, it was June. Um, I I just how is that possible? Yeah, especially it, the creating butter. I mean, come on. Yeah, it, it, <laughs> how did that happen?
3: Every once in a while, I mean, I, I print out a lot of these stories, I, as you know. I'll just you know, i also don't, yeah. wouldn't know this, but basically I go to bed every night, I have a laptop and I just sit there and I highlight. For- I just look for little stories. stories. I mean, yeah. every once in a while, one of them turns into a big story that I'll do the podcast on. But I'll have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these little stories. Right. And every once in a while, there's ones like, that one really, right. and that yeah. uh, really sounds fishy, which really applies exactly. to the story.
0: And, and I mean, okay, possibly butter, but a pound and a half? I Just yeah. crazy. Too too crazy.
3: I yeah. Know. it's. I mean, I mean it, he could have mistaken the fat in the fish for butter, but it, I just don't buy
0: it. Yeah, and even that a fish ended up in a water-filled pasture, I mean, I don't, yeah. I don't know. It's just yeah, really it, out there.
3: <laughs> it's a fish story. Okay. Our next story is dated October 9th of 1940 and is titled Perfect Host Gets Prison Term. Syracuse, New York, October 9th, United Press. Playing the part of the perfect host resulted in a three-month penitentiary sentence for Wayman G. Woody of this city. He was arrested when friends reported to police that while his wife was entertaining them at supper, Woody looted their home. Persuaded by his wife to return the stolen articles, Woody told his friends he did it for a joke. Sentence was imposed, however, when Judge Homer v. Walsh found he had previous petty larceny convictions against his record. So can you imagine that, uh, basically, uh, you
0: know. (laughs) He he stole from friends. Yeah,
3: basically his his wife has people over the house, and then he sneaks off and he's robbing their homes. I just Uh, thought that was kind of interesting. Creative. (laughs) Yeah, very creative, (laughs) although.
0: Maybe not successful, but creative.
3: Of course, he ended up in jail for three months.
0: All right. This is from December 13th, 1949, and the headline is Freak Fire. Bridgeport, Connecticut, December 13th, a box of cookies set fire to a house. Here's how. The box toppled from a kitchen shelf onto the handle of a water faucet, turning on the water. The cookies spilled out and clogged the drain. The sink overflowed, the water seeped through the floor a short circuit resulted, and the fire broke out.
3: Yeah, so, sounds a bit like a Rube Goldberg-type contraption. You know, yeah. the cookies fall into the sinks, the, yeah. uh, turns the water on, right. water then seeps on into the basement a crawl space, shorts out the electric, and burns the house. Um,
0: I could imagine it, though, because honestly, um, sinks get clogged very easily. You you drop a top or something mm-hmm. right over that area, and it, it can be clogged pretty easily, definitely with uh, cookie dough, I would think. Yeah,
3: yeah. So, anyway, I thought that was a cute little story. Yeah,
0: it's more believable than the fish one. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Absolutely. Yeah,
3: definitely. Okay, and the last little short story I have here is from uh, January 19th of 1967. It's titled, Stick'em Up, He Only Wanted $10. This is from Calgary, Alberta. And it was reported by the Associated Press. Richard Irving Clark, owner of a Calgary auto body shop, went to his bank to withdraw $10 yesterday, but made an unlucky choice of withdrawal slips. This is actually a pretty good story. I like this one. Clark, 48, filled out the slip and took it to the teller. On the back, she found a note, quote, this is a stick up. Empty the till.
0: Hmm.
3: The teller went to another employee who pressed a button summoning the police. Hmm. Meanwhile, Clark took the slip to another teller who didn't see the note on the back and gave him $10. As Clark left the bank, police followed him and picked him up.
0: For the $10.
3: (laughs) Well, no, for sticking up the bank. Right. (laughs) After questioning him for three hours, they released him, and a spokesman said, quote, some clown must have written the note. (laughs) Returning to his car from the police station, Clark found it had been towed away for overtime parking. But when he explained what had happened, he didn't have to pay to get it back.
0: (laughs) Wow. Okay. Yeah, so, uh, so it's still working the system a bit.
3: <laughs> yeah. So so make, make sure when you go to the bank you flip over the deposit slip, make sure it's not a not a stick-up note. Right. Hmm. So early I'd asked what was the highest paid act at the Woodstock concert in 1969. And I gave you five choices. It yes, was you did. Uh, yes. <laughs> uh Creedence Clearwater Revival, The Grateful Dead, Jimi Hendrix, Santana, or The Who. Which one did you choose?
0: Can I break it down? I, am I'm, I'm, um, I'm thinking of two possible. Okay, what do you think? I'm thinking Jimi Hendrix. Okay. And uh, the Who. Okay. Am I? Am I? Do I have a fifty percent chance of being right?
3: You have a fifty percent chance of getting them right. Okay, Okay. so 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 now you got to tell you
0: my logic. Yeah. I mean, I just think of Jimi Hendrix possibly being very famous at that point. Sure. And the Who Mm -hmm. as being a foreign band, right?
3: Right, but so, the who the who were very popular at that time also. Right. Um, okay, so you are ready? Do I have to choose? Well, of course, let me choose. So it's, I, it's, okay. it's a multiple choice I'm, quiz. I'm
0: close, right? I'm off. Yeah, it's close. one of the I've two. fifty percent chance. I'm going to say. Jimi Hendrix.
3: You are correct.
0: Yay! Jimi oh Hendrix gosh.
3: was the highest paid act sure. at Woodstock. Although I did watch a an American Experience uh, uh, documentary on Woodstock uh, right. uh, last summer, mm-hmm. and uh, he played, but there was nobody there. By the time he got on stage, he he was the headlining act. By the time he but got on stage, was it was late
0: at night or something. No,
3: it had rained so much, and once everybody, everybody had, left. had
0: left, oh my gosh! And and, yeah.
3: and I guess the joke is, if if you say you saw Jimi Hendrix playing, you're probably not telling the truth because <laughs> or you were passed out. <laughs> yeah, <or> right. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Um, uh, I mean, I, I, as you knew, I, I grew up very, very Down close to uh area. that yeah, site, very close. and, and uh, just a, a little side story. I've told you this, but the, I don't know if i've ever mentioned on the podcast before. But I have a friend, or I had a friend years ago who lived catty corner to the site. Okay, this is long before all the land was bought up to uh, mm-hmm. make the uh, you know, the
0: the kind of the park, and the park, that's and that's
3: yeah, and the amphitheater and all that kind of stuff. So. Um, she, I remember sitting on her porch, and people would just drive up, and you just got to imagine as far as the right. eye could see a field a of
0: field. <laughs> it was just
3: hay, you know, right. grown full height, yeah. and there's just a, a stone on the ground with a plaque, and you know, saying that the concert was held there. I, I'm not exaggerating. They pull up in one of those old VW vans, it's exactly. Always in a van. Yeah, okay. it's it, it, you know, just with a peace ma- sign on. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but, (laughs) (laughs) But uh, they pull up there and they just be staring and staring out into space. And I remember sitting there and and commenting to my friend, "What are they even looking at?" Reminiscing, I guess.
0: I guess. Do you remember that uh, field? And (laughs) yeah,
3: (laughs) I don't know. So anyway, it looks nothing like that today. Although I I should mention, they did not build the amphitheater or the museum on the The exact site. It's off to the side. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So Jimi Hendrix was the highest paid at the concert. He was paid eighteen thousand dollars. Which would be the equivalent of 129000 oh, dollars today. Good. The second of the my list actually came, it was tied for third. That was Credence Clearwater can't speak here. Credence Clearwater Revival. They were paid ten thousand dollars, which okay. is seventy-one thousand five hundred dollars today. The Who, which was your your second choice, yes,
0: who I thought possible. Were
3: ranked tenth. They were the tenth highest act. Oh my god. They were gosh. paid six thousand two hundred and fifty dollars, which would be forty-six thousand five hundred dollars today. Huh. The Grateful Dead, which of course uh, you know, for and years went on
0: to be very yeah. I mean pay, famous. You know, yep.
3: Yeah, I mean you know the Deadheads would go long-standingly and famous right, right. right. Mm-hmm. concert after concert. People would go to. They were the seventeenth highest uh, paid act. They were paid twenty five hundred dollars, which is about eighteen thousand dollars today. Hmm. And the lowest from my list was Santana. He oh was paid goodness. $750 yeah. or the equivalent of $5,400. I'm telling you for $5,400, I'll pay Santana right now to come play in my backyard. Yeah. Uh, wow. Yeah. This, I mean, if really, he's listening, there's the offer. No, right. I'm sure he's not, but <laughs> it's just kind of a joke, but, uh, he's,
0: he's also lasted really. Yeah. He's done great.
3: Yeah. Uh, I mean, just a few, uh, I mean, the bottom three below Santana 27th, uh, was Shauna Na Remember them? Yes. Uh, and the other two I haven't heard of, Keith Hartley, and the lowest paid was a band called Quill. Um, but you okay. know, but there are others. Uh, the second uh, was Blood, Sweat, and Tears. Uh, you okay. had the band Janis Joplin, Jefferson Airplane, Sly and the Family Stone, uh, Richie Havens, Arlo Guthrie, who we did see at the uh, yes, at the at Bethel, Bethel Woods. Oh, sorry, yeah, oh. Bethel Woods. But that's we actually <laughs> saw him. He was actually I didn't want to go see him. My brother did, and he was actually really good. I was surprised. Yeah. Uh, You got Joe Cocker on here and so on. So anyway, um, so Jimi Hendrix was the highest paid act.
0: Well, I, I, that kind of, I thought it was a chance.
3: Yeah. Okay. (laughs) So um, anyway, I, I guess we'll bring this to a close. Uh, I want to thank you for being on this podcast.
0: Not a problem.
3: And I'll just remind everybody, uh, you know, to make sure you subscribe through iTunes. Actually it's Apple podcasts now or Google play or whatever. Uh, And uh, you can find me on Facebook, uh, Twitter, uh, the handles at Useless Infocast, and uh, let's see what else i been up to. Oh, I, I just got asked to write a special introduction to my Turkish uh, copy of the Flipside History. So if yeah, you don't if good. you don't have a copy of the Flipside History, make sure you go out and get a copy. Um, anyway, if you thank,
0: understand Turkish, yeah, and if you understand Turkish, copy. you get
3: you get a bonus of uh, of a uh, little introduction by me, which I have no idea what I'm going to write yet. I have to I have to do that this week. Okay. Anyway, uh, thanks, everybody, for listening, and hope to tune in the next time. Bye. Yep. yep, bye. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at BeatTheStigma.org.
2: Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around, a watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love.